It's June the 10th. It's in the afternoon. It's the 11th, I think. Oops. Oh, Robbie says it's the 11th. You might be right. Take it away. Okay, I think I'll talk about pot, grass, marijuana, herb, ganja, the good stuff, sacraments. Because it's been a big, important part of my life, and I've hardly said a word about it so far. In, in West Virginia, I made all my living off it up until 1990. I didn't have any government money except some occasional food stamps. And then uh, later on, I made a large portion of my money out of it. But uh, I've been busted several times for it. And they all make pretty funny stories, I think. So I decided I'm not going to try and tell all six of them at this point. But I'll take up, I'll start up with the ones that happened in New Mexico, which there's three of. Uh-huh. All right, I moved, I'd been living in my house. I just built my house in the year 02, 2002. And I'd had a crop every year off of my little trailer in my little greenhouse that I had there. So I'd been growing it, and one day I was it, was, it was in the winter, and my friend took me to see a movie, I think it was The Lord of the Rings. And we're coming back, and he'd had a turn signal out, and we'd been smoking pot, and the cops stopped us in the town of Taos, my hometown, where I'd lived for 10 years or more. And the cops said, you know, you guys got any pot? Like a fool, I said, yeah, I got a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I gave it to him. Mm. And the pipe I had, which is a brand new pipe that I'd gotten from Tony, I think, who made pipe. In any case, I gave it to him, and he uh, he gave me a ticket, a summons to court. And I took that back to my place, and I just started to steam. I started to get more and more and more angry. I thought, this is my hometown. Everybody in this town smokes pot anyway, close enough, mm-hmm. including those to the cops. And they all know it. What is this? You know, yeah. they want me to pay $300? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But I just got madder and madder and madder. And it wouldn't go away. It kept me up at night, no. several nights. Mm-hmm. And it really drove me into a manic state. But, you know, mm-hmm. I did something about it. Yes, I did. I wrote up a whole bunch of stuff, some of which was funny and some of it was dead serious. For instance, some of the dead serious stuff was I wrote up a a little description around 800 words of my medicinal use of marijuana for my back. Were you in a wheelchair by then? Uh, I think I was. Uh, Yes, I was. Wait a minute. I might have been able to walk on two sticks. Anyway, I was pretty badly messed up. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that's a relevant question, though. So I think I was in a wheelchair. Let's say that. Anyway, hi, Marty. Check it out. So long, pal. So, the stuff I wrote up. Mm-hmm. Right, 800 words on my medicinal use of marijuana. And then I had about uh, four or 600 words on my psychological use of marijuana, including the references to the insanity of my family and how uh, nobody had smoked pot before me and how it was keeping my manic depression together, including the fact that I had been in a mental hospital at one time. And then the third essay was uh, uh, about 400 words on my spiritual use of marijuana, mm-hmm. in which I quoted Rasta people and I quoted uh, several different churches mm-hmm. without trying to be authoritative in any way, just giving my own story. Mm-hmm. That was part of this package of things. Plus, I wrote a rather humorous, at least I thought it was humorous, little parody play inspired by the trial of Socrates, as a matter of fact, where the, the protagonist of the play was me, and different people are, and, and, and the scene is, I have been told not to smoke pot by the judge, so I have decided not to do it, because, very similar to what Socrates said, I've lived in Taos a long time, it's the best town in the world as far as I'm concerned. My friends are here. My associates are here. Now, if the people of this town think that I shouldn't smoke pot, they're the best people in the world, so they must be right. So I'm not going to smoke pot. Remember, this is a satirical play. Hello, you're supposed to mm-hmm. 
You're supposed to get the satire. I do. I didn't know. It's all satire. So anyway, I'm sitting there in the club sucking my thumb, (laughs) and here come several friends of mine, one at a time, whom I gave names to. You're sitting where, Robbie? Yeah, on the plaza, Taos Plaza, Uh Taos, the center of Taos. Yeah. And one of them calls himself Catnip Clown, and he's 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 got a great big joint. He says, Robbie, I know you can't smoke pot. Smoke some of this catnip. Here, it'll it'll make you sleep. And then he falls asleep on my lap. <laughs> we get him off my lap, and here comes another one. This guy is called, he's called Damiana Clown. He says, no, 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 ignore him. Smoke Damiana. It'll give you a hard-on. It's really good. He gives me a great big joint of, of Damiana, and I'm smoking that, and I'm not getting a hard-on. And anyway, so he's no good. And then, and then the third one was Oregano Clown. He said, smoke this, Robbie. It tastes just like pot. I said, but it doesn't do anything for you. He said, well... <laughs> So anyway, this is a play. It, it, it was I thought it was hilarious. I wrote it up. And then I also had a, um, a little inflammatory leaflet. It was something that I had designed of a size that could be easily copied and passed out to people in crowds. Um, it had two sides. One side was a statement something like this. At the end of World War II, Franklin Roosevelt declared that there should be four freedoms available to everyone on Earth. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And then I said, this marijuana prohibition, in capital letters, violates all four of my freedoms. I may not practice my religion, which happens to involve smoking ganja. I may not even speak about it without danger of arrest. I'm, if I'm without my medicine for my back, I'm surely in want. And... If I have to fear the knock on the door, mm-hmm. I am in fear. Yeah. Now, this little package of stuff I mailed to the President Bush. I mailed to <laughs> Secretary Ashcroft, who was the Attorney General at the time. Mm-hmm. I mailed it to the Governor of, of New Mexico. I mailed it to the Mayor of Taos. I mailed it to the Sheriff. We not only didn't mail it, I got somebody to slip it under his door in the middle of the night. Wow. That envelope with all this stuff. That's your most local officer, huh? He's the sheriff. The sheriff. And several other people. Yeah. I, I made sure they knew loud and clear that I was going to squawk bloody murder. And then when we got to court, I did go to court. There was a woman judge, and I made a point of staggering on my two sticks. That's why I think I wasn't in a wheelchair all the time, because I think I walked on the two sticks up mm. to the... Mm-hmm. And I said, Your Honor, may I read this statement? And she said, Yes. And I read the following. To whom it may concern, I have requested a trial by a jury of my peers, which I wasn't granted. Because, well, I'll tell you that in a minute. I have requested a jury by a trial, a trial by a jury of my peers, but I know that I can never achieve this. You probably don't know what I'm going to say next. If I were to achieve such a jury trial, that jury box would be filled with wheelchairs. Only a person who rides in a wheelchair like me can understand the medicinal use of marijuana. And that includes the doctors who prescribe for us. Mm-hmm. Unless they themselves have a disability, they do not understand right. the uses of this sacred medicine. And I was shaken by that time as I read it. And the judge said, would you like me to make a copy of that? And I handed it to her. I said, no, thank you. I have a copy of this. Mm-hmm. And I staggered back to my seat. And she said, well, the, 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 the cop that made the arrest is not here, so we're going to dismiss the case. The cop didn't show up on purpose, you see. They didn't want to mess with me. Uh-huh. They didn't want to mess with that can of worms. <laughs> but I was so shook up that that year I neither went to the Rainbow Gathering nor did I grow a crop. It was a very miserable year for me. as mm-hmm. That was number one. All right, that and was what year? That was 2002. And I'm still living there. Two years later, still growing pot in the same greenhouse, in the same manner, with my own compost heap as usual. That year, I had a really good compost heap. I had about five truckloads of manure, plus wow. all the all the all the coffee grounds I could get, and all and several bales of alfalfa and a bunch of spoiled lettuce and a whole bunch of sawdust, about three truckloads of sawdust. Mm. I had a really good compost heap, and I had a really good crop. And I was going on a trip to our place in Canada, 
But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm getting this out of sequence now. Hold on a second. You've done Taos. This is still in Taos. Okay. Well, anyway, they took my crop in 04. I guess I wasn't there. I think that was the time that, that I had left 20 minutes before they showed up on a trip to Canada. We'll call it that. Huh. I think that was that time. Yeah. So uh, I was fortunately not there when they took my crop. I, because they would have taken me. Instead, I went to Canada. I didn't find out about it until three weeks later or something like that. What were you doing in Canada? Vacationing at our family place. Oh, you still had it then. Skoka, St. Brandon's Island. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, they took my crop. It amounted to about 10 pounds, probably. And uh, no, I'm getting that wrong. What happened that time? Yeah, that's what happened that time. Anyway, but they... uh, they left, they, they left a warrant. Uh, when I got back, there's my greenhouse all stripped. And they left a warrant lying on the floor. It was a John Doe warrant. It was to John Doe, you know. Whereas they knew exactly who I was. Yeah. They knew where I lived. They knew it was my... They didn't have the nerve even to print the thing. So mm-hmm. I lost that crop. And then in 06, and that next year I didn't grow any pot either because I was so... I was so upset. In 06? And then 06, I did grow a crop, and they came with a whole bunch of guns and a whole bunch of cars and ATVs and stuff and busted me and my neighbor, Two Ravens, and our neighbor, Dean. All three of us were growing pot and took us off to jail for a night. Yep. And it would have been longer if my friend Alfred Hobbs hadn't come up with $1,000 cash and bailed me out. Sweet, man. So I was lying on his bed, right? I wrote a song about it, but I'll play mm-hmm. that for you some other time. Mm-hmm. In any case, they took that crop, too. That was about 10 pounds also, probably. Just before harvest time, you know? Sure. All right. All three of those were in Taos County, mind you. And yeah. then the next year, 07, I had another crop. I was not about to change my ways because of the law. I'm a stubborn man. When I have a right to something, I'm going to get it. If they bust me, I'm going to get it next year. If they bust me next year, I'm going to do it again. And then I'm going to do it again. And then I'm going to do I'll be damned if I change my life for them. So I didn't. And the next year, sure enough, they came after me. But this time it was a little different. When they showed up with all 10 vehicles, three different agencies, the fishing game, state cops, and the Forest Service, who had no jurisdiction. <laughs> But I had just been busted two weeks before for gathering without a permit by the Forest Service. In Taos or where? Nearby. Uh-huh. At a rain, regional rainbow gathering that I'd cooked up, uh-huh. which is another whole story. But curiously enough, two weeks later, they come to my house with 10 vehicles, two of which were had big trailers with ATVs on them, like they were going to search the whole neighborhood, do us all in. Hmm. It was This was obviously more than just for me. Yeah. And fortunately... There had been a lot of rain, and there was a big mud puddle on the driveway. Well, eight of the ten vehicles, eight of the nine vehicles, stopped at the mud puddle, and they had a conference that you could see from a distance. I wasn't watching. Oh, they had a helicopter, by the way, which was circling mm-hmm. over my place by this time. Mm-hmm. Circling right over my place. So I, I, I asked, mm-hmm. somebody was visiting with me. I asked them to leave. Everybody left except me, and I went outside. I said, they're not going to see my crop, I mean, I'm not going to leave the door open in my greenhouse. They, they couldn't see in, you see, when the door was closed. Yeah. So I, I went outside and was reading a book. It was the Lord of the Rings, actually. And uh, while the helicopter is hovering over my head, and here comes one vehicle, a state cop, and it was a female state police officer with a young male sheriff's deputy of Taos County. And the two of them got out of their car and came over to me. And I'm reading my book, and I look up, and they say, are you Robert Gordon? I said, yes. He said, is this your property? I said, yes, it is. What do you want? And they said, we have, and this is an exact quote, said, we have reason to believe that you are growing marijuana plants. But you've been doing it for years and being busted for it. They didn't say They didn't that. know that, said, huh? Who knows what they do? Yeah. They just said, we have reason to believe that you have marijuana plants. Well, I didn't say yes, and I didn't say no. I reached into my pocket and I pulled out a little plastic card. I said, well, ma'am, I have this card here which says I have a right to grow marijuana plants. You see, New Mexico had just passed a law that summer. Mm. I was part of the team that got in on the ground floor. Mm -hmm. I was one of the first 30 people in the state to Mm. get a card. 
because mm -hmm. they liked me and they knew I was a poster boy and willing to be because yeah. I'd been busted twice and I <laughs> and wasn't giving it up. Anyway, mm -hmm. so I said, I had this card. I had gotten it in the mail four days before they oh, arrived. God. Eleven days after I applied, I got mm -hmm. it in the mail. So I said, I had this card, man. She said, oh, yeah, I, I never saw one of those before. I said, yes, the new law. She said, yes, I've heard about it. And she handed it to the, uh, the young deputy. And then she said something I did not expect. She said, would you mind telling me how you can get one of those cards? I thought to myself, hmm, what's this? Yeah, I don't mind telling you at all, officer. Uh, you, uh, you, you report to your doctor, and the doctor says that you are one of eight conditions currently, but they are open for more, and then you get this sick card from the Department of Health. She said, what are the eight conditions? I went, hmm. I know the eight conditions, and I told her. I said, mine is spinal damage. And she said, oh, And then she, uh, by this time, one of my neighbors had come up on a bicycle, frantically paddling and, and filming this, this, this <laughs> interchange between me and this lady. Finally, she said, she handed me my, oh, no, she said, uh, do you mind if we have a look around? And I said, I certainly do mind. This is my property, every piece of it, and I'm not giving anyone permission to search it. But I didn't get angry. <laughs> I simply stated that. And she said, oh, well, uh, she handed me the card and she said, thank you. <laughs> and I said, you're welcome. <laughs> and they walked up to the car and they left and they had a little conference in all 10 vehicles. Uh -huh. Everybody in the neighborhood was filming them and cheering them <laughs> and knowing. They went back to the rest area where there's five more vehicles they had for this operation. Uh -huh. It made the paper, it was called Operation Northern Twist or something. There wasn't anybody busted. They wasted every penny of, do of cop money. Yeah. And there was people, there was an edit, a letter to the editor in the paper saying, why don't you leave Robbie Gordon and the hippies alone? Oh, who wrote By that? Me, I don't know, somebody I didn't know. That's and, very nice. And in the nice. supermarket, I got at least one person that I'd never met came up and shook my hand. Wonderful. Thank me for what I did. That's great. Made me feel You great. must have been in a wheelchair by then, Robbie, I was huh? in a wheelchair yeah. by then. That yeah. I certainly was. I know I was. Yep. That's a wonderful story. Yeah, and they never came back to our neighborhood since then. Mm -hmm. Because they don't, see, they're not allowed to know who has a card anyway. And other people do have cards in the neighborhood now. Yeah. All right. Robbie and I are discussing who's going to type these up, these interviews. It is now, must be the 12th, huh? Of June. That's right. And, uh, and it's the morning again, a beautiful summer morning here at the farm. Robbie's in New Mexico now in our narrative. And Says you. <laughs> uh, yeah. My mind gets all over the place. Anyway, he's uh, described in the previous section four, wasn't it four pot busts in New Mexico? Just three. Three? The attempted fourth one, I had the magic card. Ah, uh, yes. And all ten vehicles just went away. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Because I had that little card for four days. <laughs> yeah. Now let's move on to the next segment of uh, life on the Mesa. There was a movie made about you all. How did That's that right. happen? Okay. This couple, brother and sister from New York City, they looked like the moon and the sun with their hair. Anyway, they were young and idealistic filmmakers, and they, uh, God, I can't even remember what year this was. Somewhere around oh six or oh five or something. Mm. Anyway, they came from New York. I think they were intending to make a movie about D. H. Lawrence in his days in in Taos area, pretty famous part of Taos history, the Bohemian, Mabel Dodge, Luhan face. But anyway, they found out somehow about the Mesa and us people out there, and they fell in love with us or something, and spent a bunch of time interviewing a number of us. You've seen the movie, I presume, Marilyn. Yeah. And a lot of people out there in the listening audience have seen that movie. It did win the uh, Michael Moore Award at the Flint, Michigan Festival, I'm told. Wow. Anyway, it, it co-starred me and good man Stan and a wonderful friend named Van, who still lives in Pittsburgh, I'm told. He's probably doing very illegal things. In any case... That movie, how did it happen? Well, those, that brother-sister team, they just liked us, and it so happened that they came at a time 
when there had been a uh, sort of a family of people that had been ripping us off or ripping different people off. And so some of that part of the movie, you remember, dealt with that crowd. We called them the Nowhere Kids. By the way, those people have become very reputable members of society. One of them is a math teacher in high school. The other one got a nursing degree, a couple, and they raised several kids. And they're pillars of the community, smart as whips, mm -hmm. and no trouble at all anymore. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether it was what we all did with our communal counseling. That was kind of a high point of communalism in, in that part of the Mesa. I mean, I just lived there as a little household. On the other hand, I did buy, when my gun got, when the family sold St. Brandon's Isle, I got a bunch of money and I spent seven or eight thousand dollars at two land sales buying up pieces of land. I bought 32 pieces, quarter acres, at prices between $110 and $1,200. All of them I checked out the map, and these were places within a quarter mile of my place, or half mile. And in the years following, it was a total of seven or $8,000 invested, not a whole lot of money, actually, by most people's standards. But uh, I sold them off one by one, some of them at a 50% profit, some of them at no profit, some of them I gave away. Mm -hmm. Always to people that I thought would make a good neighbor, always. Never to any of the well-known drunks or the well-known junkies or the well-known gun-toting dudes. None of that. A lot of women, single and otherwise. Anyway, I, I was pleased with my ability to sell them, made some friends in the process, create some community. And I recommend this to any listeners to this year episode of my life. It's a good thing to do is spare money, go to a land sale, buy up some land and give it away or share it with somebody mm -hmm. and, and give it away. Don't try to hang on. This is my advice to you, my personal opinion. Don't put too many strings on what you do. Trust the people if you're going to pass land along. Treat it as a sacred, just as sacred as you knew it was when you got it. Just give it to them. Give. Mm -hmm. Give. Anyway... Of course, some of them I charged money, yeah, but it was never fair. And even some people that I didn't like very much that I'd had a long-standing dispute with. One woman, I, I sold her three adjoining lots at a very cheap price, $600. Right on the edge of the development, good view of the wilderness. She's living there to this day, and uh, I feel good about that. Mm -hmm. We're on civil terms. So you better ask me a yes. question or two. I visited you three times on the Mesa. Yeah. And what's remarkable about, about that community, its remoteness and utter lack of any amenities whatsoever. <laughs> There's no electric. You had to get your water from a water tower near the Rio Grande Gorge. Or off the roof. Oh, huh. I drank my own rainwater the last year or two. Oh. Um, then you had... To heat by wood, of course. And, and solar. And solar. And but you didn't heat by solar, your greenhouse. That is passive design. The, the whole thing is designed. The whole house is solar design. That's right. Yep. Whole south of all is glass. Yep. And then to get there, well, I huh. had Robbie's instructions and a rented car, and I rented a little compact car. Big mistake. Next two years, I rented an SUV a little higher <laughs> off the road anyway i had to i had to skirt huge <laughs> deep ruts and i oh, made it yeah. almost to his house yes, and then i lost faith that i could find it and called him up and no, shucks. and then i was very close and he guided me the rest of the way but suffice to say i didn't think it was easy to find and there's no road signs there's no road signs there are some now are there stagecoach road is marked that's the uh, east-west road that I lived on. Mm -hmm. But well, no, yeah. never mind that. There was a ramshackle sign. <laughs> That's right. That was the only one, though. That's right. That was the only, yeah. only road sign. Yeah. There might be one or two more ramshackle signs now. You know, It's the same same old neighborhood, pretty much. I was never at your house, but what people dropped by. Maybe you arranged that. I don't know. but I can't remember. kind of surprised me that... In, and that, I think it was great spirits work. That wilderness there that 
the right people seem to drop by at the right time. Yeah. There's some good vibes in the place, mm. for sure. I, I laid every brick with my own hands, you know. Had to strap myself onto the scaffolding for part of it. Oh, Hell yeah, gosh. up there, eight feet above the ground. I, I we, we put up these right-angle constructions of two-by-fours for scaffolding. You have it there, and you have a beam leaning against it to hold it against the wall, and then you put two-by-twelves on it. And I would stand up in there and get roped in. And, and on from one side, one real tall hippie, about six foot eight, named Hummingbird Cowboy, would sling the mud up. We made mud right on the floor of the log, of the adobe, you know. Uh-huh. I bought the bricks anyway. Yeah. And here comes the mud mixed with straw already. We let it sit all night, and then we'd mix the straw in the morning with our feet, usually, or else with shovels. In any case, here comes a sploop of mud up and I got my gloves on and stuff and I smooth it out and then here comes from the other side there's this pretty girl named River blonde who liked to work topless or with overalls and and she's passing me up an adobe brick all crumbling and she's laughing her and her boyfriend got two bricks I take one I say okay hang on here come here River and I get the brick and boom put it into the mud whoop and then here's your boyfriend and he's six foot four and he hands me up a brick right into okay they go get another load and here comes hummingbird cowboy with another it was mud everywhere and i'm i didn't have to hold on because i was roped in you know but i would i would move down the row down the row and you couldn't lay more than four or five courses in a day or else the wall went sploop Uh that's another story well how about were you in a wheelchair by then no no not really Oh, you weren't. I was pretty bad off, but I wasn't quite in a wheelchair. This was about the years 99. You were walking with sticks then? Yeah, yeah, two sticks and Uh stuff like that. Yeah. It was a gradual process, my dear. I wondered how you could get up into a scaffold. With difficulty. Yeah. (laughs) But for some reason... I hired the hip. I had the family money to some extent, and enough to pay hippies seven or seven dollars an hour and stuff to work with me to build. And I worked with with them on numerous jobs, putting the roof on and the whole thing. I was impressed. My son-in-law and daughter Raven helped uh, dig the foundation trench. Oh, really? Which I just took a rope and put it around four stakes. Oh, that's nice. They had a hand in that. They had a hand in that. Yeah. And that was. I'm not even sure what year it was. I think it was 99 or 2000. But I didn't move in after a couple of years. Anyway, that was Rancho Gordo or Ranchito Gordito. <laughs> my little place, my little adobe. Uh-huh. Just for the sake of the tape recorder, it's uh, it was about 32 feet long east to west. Mm-hmm. And it was about 13 feet wide. That's north to south. And the whole south wall was glass. And built onto it was this sloping, 15-foot-wide greenhouse. With, with a bathtub in it, I recall. Indeed. A bathtub with a propane burner underneath it, a sheet metal bathtub, that I could get in while the burner was on and uh, put my feet on the other side of the tub. Adjust that temperature, get as hot a bath as I wanted in my and there was a shady tree inside the greenhouse that I let grow there, an elder tree. So there was shade on the bathtub while mm-hmm. I'm taking my bath. My favorite luxury there in Rancho Gordo. Yeah, I had a good life there. And then I spent the last two years building a library with the help of a couple of hippies. A guy who wasn't much of a reader, one of the, just a guy that a loving fellow, loving fellow. He loved me, and I paid him a little bit. He, uh, we built third, let me see, 17, how many bookcases? Five foot square bookcases out of good lumber, raw, rough lumber. Anyway, about 30 up. I remember seeing it when you had constructed it one yeah, summer, right. two summers ago, I guess yeah, it was. It didn't I mean. have any books that yet, though. Right, it got filled up. And then half, I took 400 books out of it and filled it up again. And I, I mean, I, I, I took a total of about 1,000 books and sent them to Hawaii. Uh-huh. Wow. But there's still some real treasures left there and some real curiosities, too, old stuff. You left the books on the shelf in, in yep. your new library? Just uh-huh. there. Yeah, indeed. What else I think I left my diploma there, too, for Princeton. I think it's on one of the walls behind it. Behind the books. Uh, <laughs> I think it fell down one day and I just let it be. 
<laughs> it don't matter. Yep. No, you got to leave everything in this world eventually anyway. Uh-huh. But I just hope some people like to rummage through my books the way I do. Don't you still have things in a trailer or a shed or something? Got there? them all out of there. Oh, you did? That was what the two years was about. Oh, the guy that helped me build, name is Sean, that built bookcases. He would go into, after I got a couple more bookcase spells, say, okay, Sean, go over to the cat trailer, that's what we call it, and get some more books. And he would get another couple boxes of books and come back. And I'd go through them, and some of them I'd put on the shelves, and uh, others I'd just say, these are no good, we're going to just actually give these away. Some of them went to Stan. I had rejects that I just didn't even think were worth keeping. Mm -hmm. Not a whole lot. And Stan's got a, 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 a library there now at his place, mm -hmm. lending library, mostly like cheap fiction and stuff, you know, uh, Harlequin books and stuff. Never mind all that. Anyway, yeah. Uh, I got a lot of old cheap fiction and stuff in the 30s, you know, that it was really cheap, that my, my mother's generation read, <laughs> the young girl's literature. Huh. Some of it's probably really, really boring. Yeah. A lot of it probably. Uh -huh. A lot of it has the signatures of my old family, which is just every time I go through them, I see, oh, that's Aunt, great Aunt Florence's uh -huh. book. Oh, uh -huh. she was a, a literateur. You know, she had toured France, lived in France several times. Hard to throw things like that no, away. I know, I know. And I, I, it was and quite a number of books I did take out to Hawaii that, that just for sentimental value like that. Mm -hmm. But most of them I left. Mm -hmm. You can go get them. Raven can go get them if she wants to. I wish she would. Send your kids out to my place and just let them loot the place. Take a U-Haul and take everything you want. I want to ask you about Tony. Ask at my Tony. wedding to Larry at New Buffalo in 2011, you arrived in a truck with Tony. Right. You were driving it, I believe. It was your truck. Right, I was still driving. And that's the first time that I met Tony. And then each time that I visited you on the Mesa, Tony was around. He lived close by, didn't he? In a just just barely within earshot, the other trailer. And that Big was one. your land also, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And still is. Now it's Tony's. I deeded yeah. it over to yeah. Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seemed like he was an angel because he was always there for you. And he was. My sister calls him my gentleman's gentleman. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I know. And he is a gentleman. Comes mm -hmm. from East East London, had to fight all his life. Won every fight he ever got in. Broke people's jaws Ooh. left and right. Had to, and being in institutions most of the time, and they made him do mean things. And they even well, made him join the boxing club. Because he was a troublemaker. It was England. It was England. And it was class. Prejudice, you know, the upper class imprisoned the lower class. Yeah. He was part of that big time. He'll talk to you about it for hours, and he still exists. You can go talk to him about it. Yeah. In fact, he's the guy you should interview, you know. He's dying. He's a poet, and he's got a bunch of poetry in his head that somebody's got to interview before he dies. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, he's a very open fellow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tony. Yeah, he's been living in my place since 05. And, uh, he called you recently after the volcano yeah. began to erupt. And I wonder if he's planning to go to the Rainbow Gathering, which is getting underway now, probably, someplace in the Appalachian Mountains, southern Appalachian Mountains. Every time after, how did you meet Tony? He came visiting around the year 01 or 02, when the house was just barely up and the greenhouse wasn't on it. He came visiting with a young woman named Montana and just had a bunch of his pipes for sale and happened to come through on the Rainbow Trail. He got my name from somebody or other. And then soon after that, I saw him at Rainbow Gatherings in 05. He has on crutches because he'd had a terrible accident. A hit-and-run guy had run over him, broke both his legs. He's lying there beside the highway trying to get a ride and nobody will stop. Oh, he tells dude. the story in gruesome detail, but he survived. He's a tough bird. Any case, what was your question again? Oh, you were just talking about Tony. How, How unusual a man he okay, is. Okay, so we met in 05. He was on crutches and I was in a wheelchair by that time pitching our rainbow camp next to Charlie's teepee in West Virginia. Another gathering in West Virginia, just like the first one I was at in 1980. A lot of must, must and uh, and yeah, nostalgia for me, going back to my old stomping grounds. There's a whole bunch of depths there that 
I'm not going to get into right now. But I've lived a lot in my 72 years, as you know. Mm-hmm. Just like you with all your experiences here. But my experiences with the rainbow have been in every 30 different states of the Union, you know. My memories are all screwed up about which gathering as I was at. I well, that's natural. My, I'm in the teepee in my memory with visitors X, Y, and Z, whom I also had Y, Z, and J last week. In any case, we're all in there. We flow out open in my memory, open good. And I might be in Montana, or I might be in West Virginia, or I might be in Arizona. Oh, me oh my, where was I when that happened to me? I don't know. And I've never written up my rainbow memoirs hardly at all. You know, I'm sorry I didn't keep better track of myself. Butterfly Bill, however, just for the record, has uh, an account of me in chapter something or other, 17 or something of his book. His second book, entitled The Rainbow Gatherings, mm-hmm. covering the years 02 to 13 or something like that. He's got two books that I highly recommend to anybody listening to this recording. Mm-hmm. Butterfly Bill, known as Bill Hirsch, of the Rainbow Family. The Rainbow Gatherings are the names of the books, mm-hmm. okay? Two volumes. Highly recommend. Best books ever about the Rainbow Family. Did everyone help you after you were wheelchair-bound and going to the Rainbow Gatherings? Did you get all the help you needed? Briefly, yes. Well, I'm assuming they put up the teepee for you. <laughs> yeah, you, that's right. I, must... I became just a spectator putting up my own lodge, which was hard because putting up a teepee is an art. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't very good at it, but I had my own way of doing it. But that's one thing I had to give up. I'm really lousy at giving directions to people trying to put up a teepee. It's, there's no right angles, you see, and which things go where. And I just am no good at it, apparently, and I get all dictatorial or I get all flustered or I, people don't understand what I'm saying. So I just let them, the young folk put them up. Mm-hmm. But I will give tips. And now I have measurements, too. Igor helped me with that. He's an old tippy, tippy pitcher, our friend from Taos, you know. Did you truck, you must have trucked the poles along with your canvas. Of course. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> With rare exceptions, you can't just go out in the woods and take a pole because it'll it'll, no, no. it'll poke holes in the canvas. It's yeah, I had off. I had beautiful lodge pole pine yeah. poles. Yeah. They were gorgeous. I've had good ones too. I like bamboo the best for a small teepee because mm. they're just so smooth and slick. And mm-hmm. They're just wonderful. They're so light and weight too. In any case, teepees is a whole other thing. How many times would you say you went to a rainbow gathering? Did you keep track? I've tried to count it up several times. I think it's 26 nationals and uh, 15 or 20 regionals and a couple of internationals. Wow. 26 or 30, 26, let's say. Wow. Over how many decades? From 1980 to to uh, 2014, I guess. Uh What's that? 34, 34 years. years yeah. yeah, about 26. What difference does it make? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm just curious. Of your power. Your of your I da da I da Rasavya me pakudriyabu. It means, uh, oh, oh, oh. Uh, one more time, oh, one more time, and we must toil by the tree side we must toil by the green tree side so forth yeah. oh that's about all it means it's, that's all oh, boat man. see they're pulling on the ropes uh, pulling the boat up the up the river yeah on the side on a path that runs along the river hard work a lot of a lot of rapids yeah. Same thing happened in America, of course, in various rivers, especially in Missouri and places. Explain. What do you mean, pulling the boat? The whole history of Canada depends on pulling boats upriver. I mean, when you're in Against a... Against the tide. Current. 
Current. Rivers. Current, I mean, yeah. This is freshwater sea. This yes. is continental sailing, which I'm familiar with to some extent. The history of Canada fascinates me, and I've studied up on it with pictures. And I've even traveled around the Great Lakes some because I just love it. In any All of case, them? I've been to every Great Lake. Yeah. Wow. Tried to take a bath in Lake Erie. It was too damn cold for me. I know you used to swim there. In the summer. Of course. And stayed close to shore. And it is the shallowest of the lakes, so it gets warmer than the other ones do. Uh Much by much. Uh But that's another story. I was in Lake Muskoka, which damn near as deep as Lake Erie, as a matter of fact. It gets down well over 100 feet. Lake Muskoka does. And there's a sunken steamer at about 90 feet down in one place. <laughs> you can visit it if you've got an aqualung, you know, scuba gear, I mean. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, we were talking about we were talking your about? love of boats in the water. That's Where what we, we were talking well, about. I can talk about that. Mm-hmm. That's something that you don't find. Many people, I had this wonderful connection with Lake Muskoka, the lake of dark water, a place of renowned in healing circles, there's just something about the water there that makes you feel good and and heals a lot of stuff. Can't say exactly what it is. The base rock is granite, but it's a volcanic lake, Lake Muskoka. Where is it exactly? About 120 miles due north of the city of Toronto, uh-huh. which is on the northern shore of Lake Ontario. Uh-huh. You go straight north on the big highway and then it dwindles down. And there's this chain of lakes, Lake Muskoka and its two smaller companion lakes. Where was your family's home, St. Brandon? On the town of Beaumaris, beautiful sea. It is from the French, the Norman French. It is the name of a castle location on the island off the coast of Wales, the northern island whose name escapes me, which was the last refuge of the Druids. The name of the island escapes me. But it was on the castle of Beaumaris, was on that strait there. Mm-hmm. And the people from Pittsburgh and elsewhere bought beautiful islands in the 1890s and called their place Beaumaris. Uh-huh. Every tree had been cut, by the way. Timber people came by. There's pictures of our island in 1906, and there isn't a tree bigger than 10 feet. Anyway. Good Lord. And they all grew back. Now there's, you know, 100 foot high. It was the Canadians who logged them? <clears throat> Must have been. To tell the truth, I don't know. But yes, probably so. They didn't let too much American business up there. But American tourism and American land ownership was possible back in the 1890s and 1900s in that boom time. Uh-huh. And that's when my family bought into Lake Muskoka. Yeah. Well, if it's okay with you, I want to shift gears and yeah, uh, go right talk about it. How you would stay on the Mesa until sometimes Thanksgiving or so, November, you would actually yeah, tough it out until long then? long enough to burn up a cord or more wood. Well, I had a nice wood stove, 1902 Sears Roebuck model. I saw that wood stove, and I was a little bit alarmed because it had a hole in the side of it. Where the windows are? I filled that up. The no, not the, wind, not the door to it. The door's on the side, and then there's this, this grid work of windows that yeah. have mica in there's uh-huh. mica in them, and I put mica in. I put new mica in them. Okay. Well, if it kept you warm, that's the main thing. And it so, didn't leak. It never leaked. Uh, it didn't ever. So you stayed there. You several times left in November, and <laughs> it varied. But yeah, I would go yeah. in about November or December, actually, more often. For eight or nine years. Something like that. Uh-huh. Sick? No, a little less than that. Anyway, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, about nine years, I guess. Uh-huh. From 08, I think, I was going out to Hawaii every year, every winter. Starting 08, uh, I think so. That was the last year uh-huh. I went to Beaumaris, too, in the Can- Canadian place. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, when you were in Hawaii, they made living more comfortable for you by <laughs> a, a loft, a, a bed um, of an elevator taking you up to the... Yeah, got a nice elevator. Main floor. For a while, we had an escalator that I designed built with Eli's help for less than $200. It was the simplest design. You ever play with the with the model trains called uh, Brio, I think they're called? It's a wooden train model brand from Europe. Well, the point is, there's little wheels that go in little tracks, U-shaped tracks of wood, 
And you just make U-shaped tracks out of two by fours, okay? Yeah. That are the right size as the wheelchairs. And then you screw them onto a staircase. We had an outside staircase. And I and uh, I bought for $200 a, uh, a 12-volt winch, uh-huh. like you put on a Jeep or four-wheel drive, you know, yeah. with a cable. And uh, we put that, bolted it into the railing up top and... Yeah. and uh, hook up four little loops, which we had four little slings onto the wheelchair, put it in the tracks, which you, it can't come out of, and turn on the switch, boom, up she goes. And uh, makes an awful noise, but you, <laughs> you can go up and down about 30 times without recharging the battery. It was that efficient. And you designed that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Simple. And Eli built it for me, pretty much. Mm-hmm. That worked fine, but they thought it wasn't sufficient. So they had to build me a really great elevator, but it's a terrific elevator. Good, yep. It's more heavy duty. Uh-huh. It'll take uh, big things of water and big uh, 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 earthen uh, baskets full of uh, potted plants, too. You see, you can put your... He's got an upstairs porch now where he's got a bunch of herb growing. Nice. Then it would come time, what, March? When did you return to the Mesa each year? No, I don't know. March or April. You came to May plant. Or the end. You Was had that... to be there in time to plant. Yeah, that's right. I had to be there in time to plant the greenhouse. But I planted it. I used to plant it in February. I just got lax and said it doesn't seem to matter. So I started planting it in March and April, and mm-hmm. finally in May, the last time or two. Still mm-hmm. got pretty good crops because mm-hmm. I use good soil. I mean, I put new, I did, I put new manure compost in. I make compost in a heap, mostly off Stan's goat shit that I've talked to you about, sawdust and uh, local sawdust from from softwoods, you know. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, coffee grounds from the Cafe Society of Taos. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Taos. And also spoiled lettuce and stuff and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. I've always bought a couple bales of alfalfa cut them open and sprinkle it on mm. and cover that up with some more sawdust and manure. Mm-hmm. And in one year, I had seven truckloads of manure. Wow. That was the biggest pile, plus all these other ingredients. That was mm-hmm. a big old pile. I said, I'm not going to mess with something unless I can get a truckload of it. And I used to go and shovel whole truckloads of, of chicken shit myself. Yeah. Even after the chicken farm went out of business, they had big stacks of it, and I went, kept going there for three or four years uh-huh. on my own. Something wrong. Uh-huh. Suburban truck. I'd line it with uh, with plastic so it wouldn't stink too bad. Uh-huh. Yeah, shovel it myself. Sometimes, usually I'd help, I guess. Uh-huh. Now, Good old days. Back when I could still use my legs a bit more. Uh-huh. Oh, gee, the old age. And uh, last year, I didn't go to Taos. I skipped it. But Marty went out and visited you, Marty Campbell. Yep. And he was able to say goodbye to you and hello and goodbye to the Mesa. Hello and goodbye to you because you were about to depart for Hawaii for good. Which I did. Yep. But the ghost reappears at the banquet. Ta-da! I'm back. But, you know, this time I'm going to disappear again, and there it goes. You won't see me for a while. I won't see you for a while. Well, I'll, I'll see you. I'll come to Hawaii. Why don't you come to Hawaii? Yeah, it's a plan. You like to travel? It's a good place to travel to. Yeah. All right. This is going to be segment nine or ten. Well, we're keeping track now. So now Robbie is a, a resident of Hawaii and has been since last October. Yeah. October. And... uh we're going to bring you listeners up to date with the reason that Robbie is sitting here in my kitchen past time when he was to have flown away is because his uh, his new home on the island of Pahoa. Island of Hawaii. The island of Hawaii, the town of Pahoa, Pahoa is uh, under siege by the volcano. That is to say, the fumes are intense. The lava hasn't reached his home, and, and we hope and pray it does not. But he is homeward bound from here in a couple of days. And uh, I'd just like to hear it in your own words, how you feel about your home there. Just a little while ago, you probably could hear me sitting on the porch out there in your Tennessee sunshine among the Tennessee oaks with the Tennessee Cardinals sporting around 
playing with me. It was a rivalry between a couple males, I think, but it seemed to be a playful one. And they, I think, liked the music too. But in any case, I'm sitting there and I'm singing a song called Hawaii Aloha, which is just about, it's kind of like an anthem of Hawaii, written by Howleys, written by people that don't have Hawaiian surnames, but that have loved the islands for generations. And it is kind of a rejoicing song. So I was thinking a lot about the islands, and I thought, no matter what Pele does, no matter what the fumes are, that is the most beautiful, and I give thanks. I praise you, Great Spirit, for creating this magnificent place. Mm -hmm. It's the most perfect place. Mm -hmm. The weather is always perfect. Everything is perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I loved it so much there. And I forgot how much I loved it. I was feeling really stale and depressed. I forgot how many blessings I had just by living in Hawaii. Mm. I always used to think I'd never get to Hawaii because it was, hey, it would be elitist for us whiteies to go to Hawaii. This is what I thought in the old days mm. before my sister owned property there. Yeah. And I thought, no, I could never go to Hawaii. Of course not. I mean, that's too good. That's just for rich folk. Yeah, But then I found out there is a neighborhood that's not just for rich folk, and that's where we're at. Mm -hmm. It's the hippie part of town. Yeah, And it really is a, a gorgeous bunch of people. Mm. It sort of reminds me of the Mesa, but different, too, because there's the people took something to get here, to get there to Hawaii, took money or some kind of organization, and people mostly that I'm running into are landowners, too. Yeah. So... They're in the same boat as us. They're trying to make a living off the land or working in town or whatever. And just ordinary hippie-type folk. Virtually everybody smokes pot, it seems. And if they don't, it's no problem. We're in the majority, for sure. And it's just, it's easy. And this new thing, the lava, which isn't really a new thing. Well, you, you understand the irony and the contradiction of the situation that we have. It's a wonderful lesson for the Great Spirit, one that's not given to most people. Let me see, what is the old saying? To those who have much, from those who have much, much will be expected. Mm -hmm. Another way to express it is noblesse oblige. I think my family, the Gordon family and the Reeds and all that, I think they really believed in the archetype of aristocracy. What is the justification for one group of people being the dominant society? The justification... I think is this is how my family subconsciously or consciously thinks. If our family has values which are over and above the values of society, if we have values of love, respect, whatever, all the virtues, charity, if we keep our faith to our family and we have those virtues through our family, then we are entitled to be in a leading position in society. Interesting. I believe this is the archetype of Pittsburgh capitalism, too. My gosh. Oh, God. I'm giving you my deep thoughts here. Yeah, yeah. I, am, I am a Druid, after all. Yeah. Or a Druid student. Yeah. And these currents of history fascinate me. Yeah, yeah, me too. Just read my novel, <laughs> Currents of History. We'll talk about your novel. And uh, this is a good time to do that. Is it? Yeah. You are still on the Mesa. Yep, that's and right. And you began to write, and you that's wrote right. in longhand, I'm sure, right. for you have no computer. Correct. And no typewriter. Right. So you began writing a novel, and let me ask first, how much thinking did you do about what you were going to write in the plot, for example, <laughs> before you began writing it? <laughs> None. Instead, I thought I was writing a short story. <laughs> oh, my. For a girlfriend, or would-be girlfriend, a lovely woman that I met at a rainbow gathering. Uh -huh. And uh, we exchanged addresses and became pen pals, and I just was writing this story for her. Mm -hmm. And it was a very short story. I thought of it like an O. Henry story, actually, whom I had been reading myself at the time. My father's copy of Total Works of O. Henry, which makes for delightful reading for a person like myself. In any case... Here I am writing this little love story for me and this sister, as if we had met on the South Seas and would fall in love with each other and seduced. I seduced her. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is just a fantasy, and it's nice. But then 
It just wouldn't stop. <laughs> it wouldn't stop. I said, listen, why don't you write a chapter now? And then you write what happens next. Have fun with it if you like what I'm writing you. And she wrote me back something, like a very sweet poem. I forget what. But <laughs> she sent me some very nice pictures, which uh, one of us of two scantily clad young people riding horses down a beach, a white horse and a brown horse. And I wrote, and, and they're both very brown-skinned people. And I wrote that one into into the into the book as uh-huh. So there's things like that in, in there. In any case, how are you able to send her parts of your book? What do you mean? I just Make took a long. I made a long-hand copy. You made a long-hand <laughs> sure, copy. I sent her the. It was just a short story. It was just a short story. Oh, I see. <laughs> and it just became more and more. I believe I sent her a final copy later on. I would hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I sent out quite a few. I probably did. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they cost me 25 or 30 bucks each. Uh-huh. I didn't have much money. I still don't. And it's still, they still cost me that because I haven't got it together to tell it briefly. But in any case, oh dear, I called my novel. Gone with the whales. Not the wind, but the whales. Gone with the whales. And it's, uh, most of it takes place on shipboard, mm-hmm. on board ships in the Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. and elsewhere. How long did it take you to write it? 97 days. Oh, you counted? I've, I've examined my own behavior in doing this numerous times because it's a miracle. It's inspired by some kind of higher beings. And if there are muses, they, they grabbed a hold of me. Yeah. 97 days. I never wrote anything before. I never even wrote a short story. It was my uh, affection. I knew it was just infatuation for this Catherine Hall that I met at the Rainbow Gathering. But uh, it wasn't just that. I knew something was going on in there. Something was just going on in there. I can't really give you a good answer. It's all right. That's a miracle, you see. (laughs) Yeah, you take us on a very wild ride, to say the least, in this novel. And I have told you before, and I'll tell you on tape now, that I enjoyed reading it, but particularly was impressed by the conclusion, which is nothing I could ever have imagined, where Catherine Hull takes the young sailor, you, to her family home, they're aristocrats, and gives a speech to them in the drawing room. Everybody is uh, traumatized by the fact that Catherine dropped out of their lives unexpectedly, and then all of a sudden there she was again with this fellow by her side, you. What what was your name in the Jack? Jack. Jack. Jack McGacky. Jack McGay? McGacky. McGacky. How do you spell that last name? G-A-U-G-H-E-Y. I heard that M-C. pronounced... M-C. McGacky. I've heard it pronounced McGay, too. Well, we said McGacky. I McGacky's knew a, I knew a guy. said, so here it is. Anyway. Um, McGacky. If uh, the listener of this tape hasn't read Robbie's, I, def- I recommend it highly. <laughs> If you want to get a glimpse of a different Robbie than the one you probably know, <laughs> this is a, it's a, this is a daring, adventurous. Well, you're that anyway, Robbie. Let's face it. All right. Wanna be. All right. We're going to conclude at this point. Conclude away. Conclude part nine. <laughs>